Hello, I'm Terry Foran, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's Health Ed Women's and Children's Health podcast. This is the fifth and final episode of the Fertility Pathway mini-series, and today's topic is genetic testing, NIPT, preconception genetic screening, and the pitfalls of consumer genomics. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with Dr. Joseph Scroy, and we're going to be discussing prenatal testing and preconception genetic testing. But I'm hoping too that we get the chance to explore some of the more controversial aspects of the topic. Joseph is an obstetrician, gynecologist, and IVF and infertility specialist at Epworth Freemason St. Vincent's Private, Francis Perry House, and Melbourne IVF. He's a committee member of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the RANSCOG Women's Health Policy Committee. Joseph has a commitment to medical education and mentors future generations of doctors in his role as a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne and at the University of Melbourne. Hello, Joseph, and welcome to today's Health Ed Women's and Children's Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I promise we'll get to the nitty gritty of today's topic in a second, but I'm actually really interested to know how you found yourself working in the field of genetic testing. Well, I mean, ultimately, being an IVF specialist takes you down multiple pathways. And uh, one of those things that we often do in respect to IVF is offer the couples an opportunity, firstly, to screen for genetically inherited conditions. Mm-hmm. And secondly, also then offer them IVF in order to minimise or mitigate against the risk of passing on a specific gene to a child. And of course, the other thing is, uh, is that you know, I also combine my practice not only in IVF, but also in obstetrics. And, and with obstetrics, there's, uh, you know, we always discuss aneuploidy and the risk of Down syndrome. And so discussions centre around non-invasive perinatal screening and in addition to that, obviously, the combined first trimester screening for Downs as well. So it's a it's a burgeoning area, a new area, a new frontier in terms of where things are at uh, from an IVF perspective, but something that, you know, certainly we've been discussing for a long period of time. Joseph, I'm glad you brought up NIPT because I suspect most of our mums out there in uh, in primary care, at least asking about it, I'd be really interested to get from you some practical tips as to what we should be telling our patients about this test and in particular the benefits and limitations when we compare it to perhaps conventional prenatal testing. Yeah, I think the first thing to say is it's a recommended test. I think one of the things that we often find ourselves is in a situation where people feel compelled to do some form of testing, whether that be non-invasive perinatal screening for Downs, and there's a multitude of different um, commercial names out there, or alternatively, uh, the combined first trimester screening. I always say to couples, you you consider doing any test, um, particularly related to pregnancy and pregnancy care, based on two factors. Number one, whether it would prepare you for having a child with special needs or alternatively, by getting that result, you'd act on it. And what I mean by that is you do further testing or potentially make the unenviable decision to medically interrupt the pregnancy. So if you're inclined not to uh, do anything in terms of uh, the, the pregnancy itself, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't act on a result. You don't really want to know. You don't need to do the test. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we're too quick to, to advise the test be done and then it opens up a Pandora's box of, you know, what do I do with this test result? So one of the things I would say is, yeah, just just understand firstly 
what the test is actually testing for, and it's obviously in the case of the combined first trimester or the NIPT, it's looking for Down syndrome. And then secondly, what you would do with that result. And I think that's the most important thing. So Joseph, just how accurate is NIPT and is there anything that's likely to decrease that accuracy? So look, the NIPT has been around for a, a while now, and certainly the accuracy of it is, is, has increased dramatically. And so if we're looking at, for example, a, a test, we want to first of all work out how sensitive the, that is. And what I mean by that is how many, how, how many um, pregnancies with Down syndrome it'll actually pick up. And in that case, you want a test that's pretty good. You want a test that's going to pick up all the pregnancies affected by Down syndrome. And so the NIPT, particularly with respect to um, Down syndrome, has a very high what we term, term sensitivity, which is uh, approximately 99.2%. So it's actually very, very high. Now, what that also means is that the test translates to having a, a reasonably high uh, positive predictive value, which means that if you do have a test that is positive, then the likelihood that test is truly positive is significantly high as well. Of course, this is a screening test. So just because you do get a positive test on that on the NIPT doesn't necessarily mean that the pregnancy is definitely affected. And so often doctors will then advise on uh, further testing, um, such as a CVS or an amniocentesis, which is a needle in order to take a sample of tissue from either the placenta or the fluid around baby. And that can confirm the test. That's what's termed a, a diagnostic test, actually specifically looking at the chromosomes of the baby. Joseph, if this, if this is such an accurate test, can I ask why some hospitals and other services are still suggesting other blood tests like PAPA or triple testing? Yeah, well, first of all, this is privately funded. So right. um, the test is significantly more expensive than the combined first trimester screening. So obviously for couples uh, who uh, you know can't afford the test, well, then a test that's significantly less in terms of cost is going to be at least providing them some assurances in terms of their pregnancy. When we look at the combined first trimester screening for Downs, we have, in order to achieve around about a 95% sensitivity, i.e. picking up at least 95% of pregnancies, uh, it'll also unfortunately have a high chance of a false positive. So that means a lot of women are screening positive, but actually not having um, a, child, a pregnancy affected by Down syndrome. So there'd be uh, therefore unnecessary further testing such as the CVS and amniocentesis as I suggested before. So certainly the NIPT in, in, in clinical practice has reduced the need now for doctors to offer and or advise on amniocentesis or CVS because of the fact that it's so sensitive and also and, and with a very high positive predictive value. Joseph, can I ask you what sort of costs we're talking about with NIPT? What range? Yeah, so the costs, I mean, I mean, all the companies have a different level of costings. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, the costings can range anywhere between $500 to $800. So, I mean, it is a reasonably expensive test. But, you know, you've got to counter that by working out how much in terms of the, the, the how much impact that may have to you further down the track. So some people who, you know, really want to have that assurance, want to have that peace of mind, will find themselves in a situation where they way prefer to know that information early on pregnancy. Joseph, are there any conditions or patients where it is publicly funded? 
not NIPT necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. There may be situations where the public hospital may choose to fund it for a, a, a couple who have a certain genetically inherited condition where there is perhaps a rearrangement of chromosomes mm -hmm. um, in terms of in terms of the uh, in terms of the couple. But generally speaking, no, it wouldn't be publicly funded at this stage. And do you think there's any chance maybe in the future it will be? I mean, that's a decision really for government. Uh, one would hope it is, but I mean, I think you also have to look at the uh, impacts in terms of the financial dollars and cents in terms of everyone doing this test and how much it would cost and therefore mm -hmm. how much that may draw away from other um, vital um, services for healthcare. So, I mean, I think it'd be a, a difficult case to argue for, but, you know, something that if we had an infinite amount of money, uh, you certainly <laughs> would offer it to everybody. It's always a balance, isn't it? That's the trouble. Yeah. Joseph, what if, what if a nuchal translucency scan indicated a very low risk? Do you think that an NIPT would add anything to the picture? Well, I think it's the other way around. I think, you know, we offer the NIPT very early on in pregnancy now, sort of around the 10-week mark, and that gives mm -hmm. us some reassurance that the pregnancy, um, certainly from a chromosomal perspective, whether that be trisomy 21 and even trisomy 13, which also has a very high um, uh, sensitivity rate, mm -hmm. um, that gives us some confidence that those three major chromosomal abnormalities where there's three copies of chromosomes of 21, 18 and 13 um, are normal. Then doing an, an ultrasound scan again at sort of 13 weeks in order to look at, look at the nuchal translucency provides additional reassurance. However, also doing the nuchal translucency itself and also doing an like an aneuploidy screen, which basically means looking for other structural abnormalities of the baby at 13 weeks can give further information about the pregnancy. Um, and so we do know, for example, that if, if the nuchal translucency, which is the thickness of the baby's neck, is in excess of three, uh, of three millimetres to 3.4 millimetres, we've got a reasonable amount of confidence that the NIPT has provided us an, enough information to reassure ourselves. However, if it's higher than that, we may still advise the couple um, or the woman to consider invasive testing, the CVS and amnio that I spoke to you about, because no <laughs> test is 100%. And so even though the NIPT give us, gives us some assurance, there is a possibility there can be an underlying chromosomal issue or alternatively an underlying genetic issue. So having a look at the baby at 13 weeks, looking at the nuchal translucency, looking at any other um, features that might suggest abnormalities within the pregnancy may point us to further testing and investigation. Joseph, I was reading that you can determine the sex of a baby at only seven weeks gestation by NIPT. Anecdotally, at least, I guess there are going to be couples who are going to at least raise the question of organising an NIPT to select for a particular gender, either because of a male preference or for family balancing. Do you think this raises any ethical or medico-legal issues for the referring GP or for the doctor who performs the test? Um, look, I think it does. Early on, in, early on in the adoption of NIPT, when it became sort of more widely available and the, and the reduction of the cost meant that it was easily accessible to a larger group of people. Um, I did have in my, myself, I had couples that came and saw me after that, knowing that the pregnancy was a certain gender and requesting a, a you know medical interruption of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality of the situation is that it raises a massive ethical dilemma for any clinician who's going through that process, particularly when you're 
in my field, which is creating life through IVF, and then and then having the social implications of what 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 a test coming back purely based on gender might in, entail in terms of a couple's desire for family balancing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it does raise ethical problems. I mean, at the end of the day, a couple can rightly make the decision to medically interrupt their pregnancy any time, really, mm-hmm. in terms of pregnancy, um, up until. A certain point where we need to have uh, doctors and 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 uh, hospital departments make make decisions with them as opposed to for them. Um, so look, it, it does raise a whole range of concerns, and and certainly for myself, a, a massive ethical d- a dilemma. Mm-hmm. And I guess we all need to think about our own positions on that. So thank you for thank you for that. I'd really like to take this opportunity to pick your brain about preconception genetic testing, which is another thing that many of our patients are asking about. So first, some very basic questions. At what point do you think the GP should raise the possibility of preconception genetic screening with a patient? And what sort of conditions might this be able to pick up? Yeah, it's an exceptionally important point. And, and, and still today as a IVF specialist and also as, a, as an obstetrician, I find patients have come to me following the commencement of pregnancy or after having tried for several months or even a year of, preg- of, of trying to conceive without ever being offered preconception genetic counts or testing rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a recommendation by both the colleges of obstetrics and gynecology and general practice that all couples be offered genetic carrier screening, understanding that of course it is again a recommendation. And like I said at the very start of this talk, I mean, at the end of the day, you'd be doing it if it would change your outcome, if it would change what you would decide to do. The the main test that we do is a three test, which looks at cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and fragile X. And to put it into context, one in 25 Caucasians will have cystic fibrosis or carry the gene rather for cystic fibrosis. And so that means if you're partnering up with someone who also has this, has that gene, so one in 25, and you've also got a possibility of one in 25, then if uh, you two were to cre- procreate and have a child, there's a one in four chance of having a child with cystic fibrosis. So that amounts to a one in 2,500 chance. It's not an insignificant uh, number. And as a result, that, that's part of the reason why we offered uh, pre-genetic testing. The most important thing, of course, is then to, to acknowledge that not all couples will want to do the test. At the moment, it isn't funded by government either. But fortunately, what is funded by government is if the couples do decide to make the decision to undertake IVF as a means of being able to screen for that particular genetically inherited condition and therefore only transfer an embryo that's created that doesn't have that genetic inherited condition where it will affect the, the, the their offspring, then that is now partially funded by government, both the actual makeup and, and the workup of the genetic probe, the test that needs to actually uh, look at the embryo to make sure that it do, doesn't have a, a genetically inherited condition and also the IVF cycle itself. So there are reasons now to offer it. And I think couples come to me after having had a child with a genetically inherited condition where they had never been offered um, genetic testing beforehand, somewhat bitter. But one thing I always try to do is, and, and they're bitter with their doctor and they're bitter with you know the system. And one thing I always try to say to them is, you know what, but the baby in front of you, your little kid that you've got here wouldn't be here 
if it weren't for the fact that you didn't do the testing because, I mean, mm-hmm. you may ch- have chosen to not have the child. So I think there's always a fine balance between, you know, trying to mitigate that that sort of sense of hurt uh, that they never had been offered it before. But certainly nowadays it would be relatively indefensible not to have offered that test early on. Joseph, do we need to screen just the intending mother or does screening both mum and her partner or donor increase the accuracy of the results? Yeah, it's it's an, an important question. Uh, the way the the tests generally or the companies generally um, sell their tests is that they offer the the couple genetic testing because it redu- it reduces overall cost. But you know, basically, if you're looking at those expanded genetic carrier screening where we're looking at over three hundred genetically inherited conditions, well, then it would make sense to screen the couple, um, particularly in the context of be- being pregnant. Um, so if you if early on in pregnancy you haven't done any genetic pre pre genetic counselling or pre genetic testing prior to pregnancy, then you can imagine that if you've done a test early on in pregnancy at six weeks, you get the result back six weeks later, which is twelve weeks, and then you've got to wait for your partner's test to come back, which is another six weeks. So now you're eighteen weeks before you find out. It pushes everything out. So I think it does depend upon the time. If you're early on in your in your fertility journey, so to speak, it may just be worth doing yourself. If you're, however, pregnant, then possibly doing it as a combined couple would be better. Are there any special messages on preconception screening for intending mums over 35 years of age? So is this specifically related to genetic conditions or more so the NIPT or Down syndrome? I think I think both, Joseph. So for if you've got an older mum, are any of these tests more important to to discuss and to advise? Well, I think genetics is something that, of course, we all have. We all hold the keys to the creation of life in terms of our ability to transfer those genes onto our child. And they are irrespective of whether we're 25, 35 or 45. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that is in, in that discussion, irrespective of our age, is important at all age groups. And I wouldn't say that you, we should be offering genetic testing or pre, pre-counsel testing in terms of cystic fibrosis and spinal muscular atrophy and fragile X and the like uh, to to a woman just because she's a certain age. That would be for every age group. With respect to Down syndrome, of course, specifically if we look at Down syndrome, the risks steadily increase with age. So at the age of 30, the chance of having Down syndrome is you know one in a 1,000. By the time you hit 35, it's one in 350. And the, by the time you hit 40, it's one in 100. So again, what you would do with that particular result, as I said early on, Uh, whether you would act on it or whether it would better inform you about having a child with special needs is really ultimately how you frame the discussion with your patient. So uh, I, you know, generally speaking in a, in a private setting, and and I obviously do a lot of private obstetrics, uh, most, if not all my patients do do the NIPT irrespective of age. And um, it certainly has reduced, as I said before, the need for an amniocentesis and, and, and or a CVS, which was generally speaking offered to any woman over the age of 37 in the past. So I think at the discussion, you know, you, GPs particularly have a, a, a really wonderful relationship with their patients in terms of understanding them from a from a you know a psychological and a, a, a mental health perspective, but also understanding their needs as a family as well. So, you know, uh, discussing 
with your patient, making sure that you um, explain the test to them. And I, I spend a lot of time discussing the NIPT and how it works. And I explain to, to couples that in layman's terms, how the NIPT uh, how the NIPT works so that they have a conceptual visualisation of how it works so they can walk away and go, yep, that's a test for me. Joseph, I'm assuming that as always, history is important when it comes to preconception testing. Do you have any tips as to what we should be asking our intending parents in order to establish the possibility of an inherited genetic condition and maybe how far back in the family we should be going? Yeah, so I always, it, it's interesting you say that. I always say the couple, oh, in my in my history taking, I always say, is there any genetically inherited condition where you know the gene, you can test for the gene? Obviously, there's a lot of genetic predisposition, cardiac disease, diabetes, but often couples will report a specifically uh, in genetically inherited condition, whether that be an autosomal dominant, so a dominant genetic trait or alternatively a recessive trait where you need two faulty genes to pass on to to uh, to a child in order to have a genetically inherited condition um, and I think it's really important to discuss that and also to find out whether it is in the family so what I mean by that is cousins and, and grandparents so that you've, you've got a bit of an understanding I mean most of us sort of know our cousins and know our cousins history a lot of us will also know our parents and our, our our aunties and uncles and certainly you know possibly our grandparents but unlikely to know beyond that and certainly great aunties and uncles probably not I think the other thing is a couple who've got recurrent miscarriages and we often talk about recurrent miscarriages being three or more miscarriages. Uh, they should, generally speaking, have a chromosome test to make sure that they have a balanced number of chromosomes or rather they have an appropriate number of chromosomes where there's no uh, reciprocal translocation of their mm -hmm. chromosomes, which may predispose them to having a, a sort of a, 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 an abnormal number of chromosomes forming in a fetus, which can lead to miscarriage because that would be particularly important uh, knowledge to know ahead of them wanting to become pregnant. Joseph, what if a couple asks about having their embryos, embryos checked, checked. For, ge for genetic conditions? How can we best counsel them on that point? So there's two points to this. Number one is testing the embryo to see that it's chromosomally normal. And I always say to couples that chromosomes are like volumes of an encyclopedia. So we want to have a pair of 22 chromosomes. So we all have a pair of 22. So if you imagine you've got a bookshelf with 22 volumes, um, but there's a pair of each of them. So two volume ones, two volume twos, all the way through till 22. And then, and of course, if you're a female, X and X. And if you're male, then X and Y. So we want to make sure in some circumstances that the volumes of the encyclopedia are completely normal. And that that's one form of what we term genetic testing. Well, it's genetic testing for what we term aneuploidy, just making sure that the chromosomes are normal. And this is where it's then important to have had that discussion about genetic carrier screening. So if prior to becoming pregnant, or prior to IVF, rather, the couple have undertaken genetic carrier screening and we've been able to determine that there's potentially a genetically inherited condition the couple are passing on. Or alternatively, we know that one of the parents has an autosomal dominant condition, such as a condition that can affect the bowel or breast or whatever the case might be, or the kidney, then we can actually screen specifically for that gene. And the gene, best way of describing a gene is if you imagine you pull out a volume of one of those encyclopedias and you read a page of text 
that's within that volume of an encyclopedia. And you notice that there's lots of spelling mistakes. Well, those spelling mistakes will translate to how that gene functions or how that gene works and therefore what it then subsequently relates to, whether it be a function within the body or the way that the body metabolizes something. So we look for that specific abnormality or that specific gene uh, in these particular embryos to make sure that that embryo doesn't have or we transfer an embryo that doesn't have that specific gene disorder or those spelling mistakes that as I explained within the volumes in the encyclopedia so in that case it is something that we definitely offer and you know I have had many couples who have seen me specifically for the purposes of of excluding a, a genetically inherited condition that they don't wish to pass on to their children and that can only be born out of a discussion that happens prior to conception Joseph, lastly, I'd like to ask you about the curly issue of consumer genomics. My reading suggests that these tests are really quite widespread in the US, where most of this consumer-driven testing is done. Do you have any thoughts as to why it's so widespread over there? Well, I also think it's starting to become a little bit widespread over here. I mean, obviously, consumerism is a, is you know the buzzword amongst not only the medical field, but of course, in every field that we that we are in. So people tend to gravitate to advertising and advertising, if done well, can then sway your perception of what needs to occur in terms of your own health. I think people have a great thirst for understanding how their bodies work and understanding how how uh, genes can change their lives um, the problem is of course if you're going direct to consumer there isn't that ability to counsel beforehand and sometimes people can be left with a result that sort of makes them perplexed worried or alternatively fearful of what the future might be so you know we do need to we do need to have a little bit of caution on it. Of course, the other thing to mention is that you, whilst you might have a genetic risk for something, whether it be for cancer, whether it be for heart disease, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be your genetic destiny. You know, uh, you can modify certain risk factors and behaviours that may prevent you from particularly having an illness. So I think doing it, Doing any form of genetic testing in tandem with a physician or a GP or, you know, a medical specialist is going to be particularly important because the interpretation of that particular data can then have, you know, can have a positive impact in the quality of your life. Joseph, for those who maybe haven't had much of an exposure to this kind of testing, can I ask you what sort of claims are made by the companies who market these tests and how accurate they are and maybe how much they cost? Yeah, I mean, I haven't gone into consumer genetics in in a huge deal, and as you said, it isn't rife here in Australia just yet. But there are there are companies that purport to you know talk about how genetic some forms of genetic testing can advise you on, um, you know, diet the diet you should be on, or you know your risk of heart your risk of heart disease, or or the case might be. In terms of cost, I'm not a hundred percent certain because I've not done too much too much research on it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my my level of expertise in terms of genetic testing pretty much is just with respect to what we know is medically relevant and 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 more appropriately we can actually action so it's an actionable pro, uh, product in terms of the NIPT and also the genetic carrier screening so that the, these consumer based ones probably work outside that fringe and aren't really at the, at at this point in time aren't really focused on on deliverable outcomes Mm -hmm. 
Joseph, can I ask you for those of us who'd like to know a little bit more about genetics, genetic screening and all the all the things we've been talking about, whether you've got any resources or websites or anything at all that you could recommend to us that's reputable and accurate? Well, the government does have some that does have some information specifically about genetic carrier screening. And in addition to that, the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists plus also the College of General Practitioners also has some information about, first of all, genetic carry screening, and secondly, with respect to NIPT or combined first trimester screening from Downs. I mean, these are reputable um, organisations and, of course, are balanced in terms of their views as to whether you should test or not test, rather than go to specifically a consumer-based product, which obviously will promote genetic testing in, in all its forms. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, Joseph, but if I could ask you at this point, if there's any really important messages that you'd like to get out there to our listeners today on preconception screening and genetic testing. Yeah, I think first of all is, you know, in terms of anyone who's either contemplating pregnancy or clinicians who, of course, are seeing patients who are, are wishing to conceive, the most important thing is to have a preconception consult and discussion. And I think, you know, it is difficult, I think, from a general practitioner's point of view to actually spend the dedicated time in order to go through all these issues. And sometimes a referral to a obstetrician or alternatively a fertility specialist to have those discussions or a gynecologist may be warranted just to give enough time and, and information about those specific conditions before heading, heading on into trying to conceive. But I think definitely understanding what the test implications are in terms of what you would do with the results. And obviously in the first place, actually being recommended the test. So as a clinician, you know, being recommended the test and as a consumer or rather a patient, actually uh, understanding that these tests are out there and available for you to, to utilize. Joseph, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I'd really like to thank you for sharing your time, your expertise and your advice with all of us today. You take care. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Just a quick reminder to keep an eye on the HealthEd podcast menu. HealthEd is committed to providing up-to-date, evidence-based information by acknowledged experts on topics of interest to all health providers. I'm sure you'll find something that will help you in your own clinical practice, or at least pick your interest. So that's goodbye from me until my next podcast. Thanks so much for listening.